Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS podcast. Simon Alicia here. Great to have you back. Another episode, another set of updates. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things that have gone on that you may not have been aware of. And uh, I was feeling that we're a little bit behind in sharing with you all the cool new things that are available. So this will be a little bit of a potted tour among some things that have been happening uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, this is going back in time a little bit, although uh, I'm recording it probably a few weeks after some of these announcements took place, but uh, they're important and in very different areas. So without further ado, let me give you the quick run through. So one of the first changes is that uh, Amazon RDS for Oracle now has a license included offering for Oracle Standard Edition 2 or SE2. Now I'm by no means an Oracle licensing expert. But uh, what I can tell you is that uh, you can run Oracle Standard Edition 2 as a license included offering on Amazon RDS. And you can also upgrade your existing Standard Edition and Standard Edition 1 instances in database version 12.1.0.1 to Standard Edition 2 using the AWS Management Console or the API. Now, what's important about this is in the license included service model, you don't have to buy separate Oracle Standard Edition 2 licenses. So the license included pricing wraps the cost of the software license, the underlying hardware resource, and the RDS management capabilities all in one, pay for by the hour, pay for what you use, which is very, very cool. Now this is in addition to the bring your own license offering. So you can bring your own Oracle Standard Edition 2 licenses if you want. This just kind of wraps it up for you. Now, what you get if you're running uh, Amazon RDS for Standard Edition 2, is a database version higher than 12.1.0.2 v2 and you get multi-az so high availability you get database storage sizes up to six terabytes and your storage performance can be up to 30,000 ios per second you also have access to storage encryption using keys that you manage using the adipose key management service so very simple process to go through to get access to this. You can also migrate your existing databases to it as well. So for those of you who are in the Oracle space and want a more efficient way to purchase your license or leverage it for dev test workloads, etc., this would be a way to go. Now, there's been a big update to one of our beta services, and this is Lumberyard. Now, many of you may not have had a lot to do with Lumberyard because it's very specific around uh, developer and games and interactivity, etc. And I'm certainly not cool enough <laughs> to be an expert on Lumberyard, but they've released beta 1.4 and there are a whole bunch of improvements that have taken place. Uh, to give you a bit of a summary, uh, news messages appear in the Lumberyard editor. Uh, there are new gem samples to demonstrate environment special effects. Uh, you can do live reload of skin files automatically. Uh, there's new functionality for the VR controllers. Uh, you can preview your UI canvas to see how interactive components change shape. Uh, Gridmate now supports encrypted connections. So there's a whole lot of changes, I'm just naming a few, that really will affect and improve your experience. One of the great things about uh, running a service like this in beta is we get a lot of feedback from our customers, which as you know, we love getting that. And that helps us drive what the next iterations of the service look like. So I'm sure that those of you who use Lumberyard will go and look at the what's changed and go, aha, I wanted that, I wanted that, that's great. And uh, we want to continue doing that for you. So lots of chambers for changes, I should say, for Lumberyard, version 1.4 now. Now to a more venerable service, one that's been around for a long time, Amazon CloudFront. And there are two new points of presence, uh, bringing the total up to 59. And those two new edge locations are in Toronto and Montreal. So obviously, Canadian customers will get a better uh, performance profile when they're using 
uh, applications and content that is served through CloudFront, which of course makes it nice and easy to bring your content close to your customers. So again, from an architectural standpoint, if you're operating in a global sphere, you need to think about bringing data closer to your end users, data that is uh, both static, so things like um, web content, pictures, uh, even snippets of JavaScript, but also dynamic. So you can do a lot of accelerations uh, through CloudFront as well, even for APIs, etc. So it gives you a lot of power, a lot of flexibility. So now we have this capability with these edge locations in Canada, and they fall within the price class 100. So those of you who follow CloudFront will know that there are different pricing based on different locations because we try and drive the cost down as much as possible and pass those savings on to you. So this one fits into that category. Um, to take advantage of this, you don't need to do anything. That's the beautiful thing. As long as you're using that particular price class and that location in your configuration, you can get access to it. So nothing to do except enjoy. Another change is small but perfectly formed, as some may say, and this is if you're using the Amazon Machine Learning or ML service. And machine learning is a really interesting domain that we'll go into in detail in another podcast. But what you need to know is that now you can access information about how long it took to create a data source, model, evaluations, or batch predictions in the Amazon ML console and you can see it in the API and the SDKs. Now the reason why knowing this creation time is important is it means you can now estimate how long it would take to create similar objects which means you can optimize your workflow, you can understand what's going on if you're running regularly retrained models. So if you start to see a model take a lot longer to do something then you know aha something's out of skew here etc. So it's kind of an induction loop that you can use to get better information about what your models are doing. So again a very Small change, but it has far-reaching effects. So very excited to have that available for you. Another small but important one is uh, DNS resolution support for VPC peering. So what this means is that you can enable resolution of public DNS host names to private IP addresses when queried from the peered VPC. Now this is also supported cross account, so the two VPCs can be different accounts. And essentially this simplifies DNS setup for VPC peering connections. So this is a classic one where you would have in the past gone, ah, I can't do this, and now you can. Um, so just check the doco, uh, DNS resolution support for peering connection, and problem solved, which is always a good thing. Now one of the things we always like to do for customers is give them a lot of choice in terms of how they deploy services and what infrastructure they use to deploy their services to get the best possible price performance mix for their particular use case. Everyone has different requirements, everyone has different needs, but one thing you know if you've been listening to the podcast for any period of time is that when we upgrade the families within EC2, typically they represent a better performance price break and ratio from the previous generation. Now, related to that is that Amazon Elasticache, so this is the service that does Memcached and Redis, now support the M4 node types. And these provide a balance of compute memory and network resource, and they come in five sizes, anything from 6.42 gigabytes to 154 gigabytes of memory. Now, I'm mentioning memory because obviously these are cache things, so memory is important. And these are superior in terms of performance and price to the M3 node type. So what I'd recommend is if you're using the M3 node type at the moment, it's time to switch, uh, upgrade to the M4 node type, you can probably get away with uh, less cost for the same amount of performance, which is always a good thing. So we now support that new M4 family. Another small change that is really interesting that I know I've been enjoying myself is you can now enable federated users to work in the AWS management console for up to 12 hours. 
So it used to be that you had to re-authenticate every 60 minutes. And it's amazing when you're doing something, how fast 60 minutes passes and suddenly you're re-authenticating. Now it's important to authenticate for security, but there's also that balance between convenience, etc. Now you can allow these federated users to work in the console for up to 12 hours. You can configure how long it is, so it's not uh, forcing you to go that distance, but you can tune it to what works for your particular user. So you may have users for whom 10 hours is sufficient, others for whom six is more appropriate, but now you can get more than the 60 minutes. There's a great blog post on the security blog that talks about how to specify this duration using SAML 2.0, and uh, I'll be providing a link in the show notes. You can also see how to do it in a custom broker as well. A couple of changes to IoT, AWS IoT service, one of my favorite services because just things are going off in the IoT space and it's developing really, really quickly. So there are a couple of small but important changes that are taking place that reflect how this is progressing. So AWS IoT now supports just-in-time registration, J-I-T-R, of device certificates. So this is expanding on the user own certificate functionality that was launched earlier in the year that made it easier to enroll devices with AWS IoT. Now, before this change, the just-in-time registration, the device enrollment process had two steps. First, you had to register the certificate authority certificate to AWS IoT, and then you had to individually register the device certificates that were signed by the CA. Now, with just-in-time registration, you can complete the second step by auto-registering device certificates when they connect to AWS IoT for the first time. So what this means is you don't have to go through this process of pre-registering device certificates. The other interesting thing is it allows devices to remain offline during the manufacturing process. When you think about the scale that many uh, IoT applications run at in terms of the number of devices being manufactured and distributed, this has a manifestly positive effect on that workflow and that process. So just-in-time registration, very, very cool. Now, if we have lots of devices out there and lots of things in our Internet of Things, uh, managing and finding them is probably something important to us. So uh, another change made in AWS IoT is the support of thing types in the thing registry. Thing types allow to effectively manage your catalog of devices by defining common characteristics for devices that belong in the same category. So it's an easy way to organize. Now, in addition, a thing that's associated with a thing type can now also have up to 50 attributes, including three searchable attributes. So now you have this really effective, searchable, managed repository of information about your things. It's the metadata collection of the things that are out there. Very useful for categorizing, for sorting, for understanding what's deployed. Great for lifecycle management as well. So certainly a capability that you need to think about when you're deploying things at scale using IoT. Now, developer community are really taking advantage of a bunch of different services. One of them is AWS Code Commit. And again, in the spirit of lots of iterations and small changes that make life better, you can now view the commit history of an AWS Code Commit repository from the Code Commit console. So this makes it easy to see the changes that were made to a repository, who made those changes and when they were changed. So it gives you all the information like author information, commit messages, ID, etc. You can also filter commits by a specific branch or a tag. So just a new view that you have available in the console. Again, one of those little changes that help make things just a little bit brighter in your day. Now, the last update I want to share with you in this particular episode was a big update. And this is for Amazon Elastic MapReduce or EMR. Now, MapReduce is one of our biggest used services over history where there have been millions and millions of hours of cluster time being used because MapReduce is a very useful functionality 
to analyze huge amounts of data at relatively low cost and at high speed. And the entire ecosystem around this big data space, if I can use that term, constantly changes and constantly evolves with a huge number of open source projects focused on this particular domain. So the release that we're announcing is EMR version 5.0.0. And this includes a major release that includes support for 16 open source Hadoop ecosystem projects. It provides major version upgrades for both Spark and Hive, use of Tez by default for Hive and Pig, and also user interface improvements to both Hue and Zeppelin and more advanced debugging functionality. Now, if everything I've just said to you sounds like a completely different language, you're probably not doing a lot of work in the big data space or at least in the MapReduce space. Although for those of you who are, I know all of those would be uh, very, very exciting. So what we've done is really, well, what we've done, I've used the Royal We there again, is what the team has done is really brought up to um, new versions, a whole raft of different capabilities within the ecosystem, which means that you can build an Elastic MapReduce cluster very, very quickly and get access to some of the latest capabilities within these ecosystem projects. Because most people won't use all of them, they'll use a mixture of them based on the particular problem domain that they're working on. Mm -hmm. What we've done is made sure that there is uh, up-to-date as possible and accessible as possible. Now, one of the things I love about Elastic MapReduce is it is so easy to get going. It's really paint by numbers, follow the bouncing ball to get your cluster up and running because you don't want to be spending time managing your cluster. You want to be spending the time analyzing your data and building your data models on top of that cluster. So this gets you going very, very fast. Please remember that using spot instances is very easy with Elastic MapReduce, it can reduce your cost significantly. The integration with S3 is very, very tight, which means you can store your data for long periods of time in huge volumes at very low cost and only run your compute when you need to actually operate on that particular set of data. So that's a bit of an update of what's been going on. Some big things, some small things. As ever, we love to hear your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com. Lots of new interviews coming your way very soon. Uh, recording a few of those in the coming weeks. We'll be doing some architecture discussions as well and uh, obviously bringing in more Black Belt tips. Please do share with others that the podcast is back and uh, look forward to speaking with you next time. And until then, keep on building.